So we're going to continue on in our series in Mark that we've been in. And, you know, Mark, this series that we're doing through Mark is going to be quite a bit of like Bible study. It's going to be a little, sometimes we might get into the weeds a little bit for those of you who enjoy that kind of thing. Um, But we're really going to be digging into the text and some historical context and all that. Some series, you know, may have a lot more stories and, you know, those kinds of fun things, a little lighter. Uh, But our Mark series is going to be pretty uh, in-depth, but it's some really interesting stuff. And I'm really interested in this uh, uh, sermon that I'm going to share with you all today. And so I encourage you all to lean in with me, uh, bear with me till the end, because I I think that uh, some good stuff can come uh, from these things that I've been reflecting on and and learning about over the last uh, week. So let me begin by sharing two quotes with you. Uh, We've started uh, Black History Month, and so these two quotes uh, are wonderful for sharing right now because they come from two people that I have so much respect for. The first is Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, powerful uh, black woman uh, during the freedom movement. But she says, sometimes it seems like to tell the truth today is to run the risk of being killed. She said, but if I fall, I'll fall five feet, four inches forward in the fight for freedom. I'm not backing off, she said. And she was serious. (laughs) The second is from John Lewis, uh, another powerful black freedom fighter who passed away a few years back. But he said, do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful, be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. Both Fannie Lou Hamer and John Lewis I believe, carried on a a bit of that spirit of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, his commitment to redemption, to freedom, and to love. And like Jesus, they were both willing to count the cost. They were willing to pursue what was right and what was good, regardless of the consequences. Jesus certainly wasn't afraid of making some noise. Jesus wasn't afraid of getting into trouble sometimes some of that good trouble and that necessary trouble. As we saw last week, Jesus' first act in his public ministry in the Gospel of Mark was going into the synagogue and casting out a demon on the Sabbath in the synagogue. This was a foreboding sign of what was to come. I mean, soon as he enters the most holy place, on the most holy day of the week, he encounters opposition. This should alert us that this book is not going to be an easy book, right? Jesus is going to get into some stuff in the Gospel of Mark. He had an immediate confrontation. And this spirit uh, who was in this man speaks on behalf of the scribal authorities that had kind of ownership of the religious structure there in Capernaum. And he asked Jesus, he said, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? confrontation right off the bat. Ched Myers, a New Testament scholar, says from the moment Jesus strides into Capernaum synagogue, it becomes clear that Jesus's kingdom project is incompatible with the local public authorities and the social order they represent. The kingdom of God is incompatible with what was happening there in that town. I think the kingdom of God is often incompatible with a lot of the things that we see going on around us now. I want to look at our text for today, and I'm not going to look, read the whole thing to you, but it's a long section of Scripture, 
that covers all of chapter 2 and then the beginning of chapter 3. And this section is often referred to as what you could call the controversy dialogues. It's because Jesus has dialogue and conversation with people and he gets into a lot of controversy right off the bat in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus provokes this controversy and conflict through the things he does in these verses. He gets into some good trouble, as John Lewis talked about. I want to talk about some history with you all, um, because I think it's important. If we're going to understand the Bible, we need to understand something about the context of when, in which the Bible was actually written. We need to understand something about the historical context. We talk about that a lot at our church. We need to remember that the Bible is a very ancient book. It was written like at least 2,000 years ago, right? The Bible is very old. It is an ancient book that was written thousands of miles away from here in a culture that is very distant from ours in a time that is very distant from ours. We need to treat uh, these texts more as, as stories from a distant land as opposed to something that's speaking exactly to what we're experiencing right now because they were living in a world that looked very different from our world that we talk about today. And so the Bible is ancient. And last week, I encouraged y'all to, to not only pay attention to what happens in the text, but also pay attention to where things happen in the text. We need to pay attention to the location of these stories. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the location of these first few chapters in Mark. Most of the stories in these first few chapters take place in a town called Capernaum and in some of the surrounding areas. Capernaum was a fishing town. It was located on the, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was it's really a large lake um, in the Holy Land. Um, I've had the chance to go there. It's a really beautiful place. Um, but it's in that northern kind of part of the Holy Land. And since the location is Capernaum, a fishing town, where these stories take place, then I think we ought to talk a little bit about fishing in first century Palestine. I don't know if we have any fishers in the, in the group. I'm not good at fishing. I don't do that. Uh, but I think we need to talk about it because it was an occupation that a lot of folks had. and It was very important. Fishing was like really what supported these folks and their livelihood in Capernaum. So before uh, the Roman occupation of Palestine, fishermen like the Zebedee family, for example, some of those folks ended up following Jesus, they would have made a pretty good living in Capernaum by running their fishing business. They would go out to the Sea of Galilee every day and they would catch fish, probably lots of fish, because there were lots of good fish in the Sea of Galilee. However, what happened is the Roman government ended up coming in, this empire, and they took control of this land. And what they did naturally is when they came in to take control of the land, they also took control of the food production in Galilee, this area around the Sea of Galilee. And their, their control and them moving in and taking ownership of this greatly impacted these fishers in Capernaum. People like Simon and Andrew or James and John, names that you've heard before likely, they were fishermen. And they would have felt the effects of these new economic policies. The local produce at Capernaum, which once benefited the local people of Capernaum, eventually began to be exported or extracted from Capernaum and sent out to other parts of the Roman Empire. And it was really sent out for the consumption mostly of wealthy elites and powerful folks and, and some of the people with more resources in other parts of the empire. 
We've seen this kind of thing happen throughout history all over our world where a massive uh, kind of colonization project, you can take Africa, for example, this massive continent with so many resources and so much uh, potential for, for all these resources and wealth within this continent. Through colonization, these colonizers came in and could, took control of the production of the resources and the food and ended up extracting so much of their resources and sending it out to other parts of the world. And this very thing is happening right now in Africa. A place like Congo, the DRC, where some of my friends come from, uh, there are tech companies and folks who are extracting their cobalt and copper and forcing people and displacing people off of their lands. And it's resulting in so many lives being lost and displaced. It is awful stuff that's happening. And this happened even in Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky, going in and stripping eastern Kentucky of its resources. And they don't get to enjoy them in the community. They're sent out to other folks to enjoy these resources. And this was happening in the Roman Empire. One product in particular in the Roman Empire that was popular was fish oil. Galilee had lots of fish, and so fish oil uh, was something that many people wanted, and so the Roman government built factories in Galilee. They built nice roads so they could transport all this stuff out of Galilee, and they would process the fish and export the fish oil and other fish products outside of Galilee to other parts of the empire. They were stripping Galilee of this valuable resource of good-tasting, high-quality fish. So not only did the government begin stealing these resources uh, from Galilee, but they also would pay very low prices for these products. They would heavily tax the products, and they would charge tolls to transport the products across borders. And they even charged the fishers a license fee to be able to fish on their lake, which they had basically owned in their community for, for generations, right? And so being a fisher was once a good occupation that benefited the community. However, these policies from the Roman Empire ended up impoverishing and marginalizing these fishing families in Galilee. Now, the taxes that they were forced to pay, they're not kind of your basic taxes that we pay where, you know, it helps us have public schools and public parks and provides roads and stuff for us to, you know, enjoy life. These, this form of taxation was really a very harsh form that, that really served to keep the subjects of the empire poor. This kind of taxation was killing people, and their product was being exported to benefit the wealthy. And even on top of that, in, in the Jewish culture, the religious leaders in charge of the temple system of tithing and sacrifices were also taking a portion of their product as a tithe to the temple. And so you can imagine it was really hard to make an income and be able to get ahead in this kind of system. There was this self-serving empire that was making life very hard for lots of fishers in Galilee. And so I think it's interesting that Jesus' first disciples that he called were fishers. They were fishermen. They were restless, struggling fishermen. Jesus came in the world to establish this new way of living in the world built on love and equity and compassion and freedom and justice. And the first people he called to his movement were disenfranchised, poor laborers. Perhaps it makes more sense why they immediately left their nets to follow Jesus because the status quo wasn't working for them. And it was like, hey, if Jesus is offering something new, let's go. Let's try this out. Let's move forward for change. So I want you all to keep this in mind. Let's fast forward to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I'm going to read this text for you. And this is about one of Jesus' disciples that he called in this section of the controversy dialogues. And so let me find my, 
my spot here. So once again, uh, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Meanwhile, uh, or while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to him, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus went back out to the lake, or the Sea of Galilee, it's the same thing. And he called another disciple to follow him. He had already called these fishermen to follow him, but he went out and called another disciple. And his name was Levi, son of Alphaeus. Now Levi was not a fisher like these other guys, but Levi knew the fishers. Levi was involved in tax collection. He was a Jewish man, in many ways you could argue was collaborating with the Roman government to collect taxes and fees from the peasant fishing families. He was likely involved in two types of tax collection. First off, he would have sold the fishing licenses to the people who were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They probably wouldn't like that they were having to buy a fishing license to fish on their lake, right? So he was selling them their license. And also, he likely collected tolls on the goods that would have crossed the border. Now, these toll collectors would have charged what the Roman government required, but there's a good chance they would have charged interest on top of that so they could keep a little bit of money for themselves. The fishers were being charged to fish on the lake, and they were being charged to sell their products to people in other places who could afford to buy him. And so, Levi, the tax collector was actively bringing financial hardship upon the fishers who were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And he was likely keeping a profit for himself. So as you can imagine, these tax collectors, these toll collectors, were not very well liked in that part of the world. They were despised by many of the Jews because they were viewed as being dishonest and sellouts and swindlers. And Jesus called one of these guys to follow him. It's pretty shocking, right, that Jesus would call one of the tax collectors to follow him. But it gets even more unbelievable. Then we read that Jesus went to Levi's house for dinner and basically threw a big party over dinner at Levi's house with other tax collectors, not just Levi, and his disciples were there as well. And his disciples that he had called already were fishermen. And so get this, Mark portrays a story or a party where you have the ones who were in debt and the debt collectors all together in the same house celebrating. Now, I can't imagine a party like that happening without some serious conflict unless something were to happen ahead of time. The only way I can imagine that kind of celebration happening is if folks like Levi took their discipleship seriously, they repented of their sin, and they engaged in some serious wealth redistribution. Because if somebody swindled me out of money, I'm not going to go party with them until they make that right, right? If someone swindled me out of money and was leading to my poverty and my suffering, I am not going to go to a dinner party with them until they make things right with me 
before that, right? We see another example of a story like this with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus um, was another tax collector, and he was called to follow Jesus, and he ended up deciding he was going to pay everybody back four times what he had cheated them out of after he followed Jesus. So while Jesus was throwing the party, uh, some Pharisees, which were some religious leaders during that time who took the law very seriously, um, there were likely some wonderful Pharisees, and there were also some Pharisees that Jesus had some problems with. And some of the Pharisees saw what was taking place inside of this home. Because these homes, they didn't have big living rooms. They were probably this party was spilling out into the common areas. You could see into the homes. They were very public places. And so they looked in and they saw what Jesus was doing. He wasn't trying to hide it. Maybe he wanted the community to see this shocking party that was taking place. But here's what they saw. Jesus was sharing a celebration meal with poor people, with sinners, and the evil tax collectors. Honestly, this party probably would have offended almost everyone in Capernaum. Because these people were not supposed to eat together. They were not supposed to be together. Some of the Pharisees were particularly offended. You see, they had their own movement going, which called people to rigorous adherence to the Torah and the oral traditions of Judaism. They cared deeply about the purity laws and the food laws. And this, the kind of food you ate mattered. And the people you ate with really mattered to them. They enjoyed their position often of regulating these boundaries. And who you shared the table with mattered. So during Jesus' time and during Mark's time of writing this gospel, the movement of the Pharisees was gaining momentum. It was very popular. And Jesus and Mark, I think, both understood that this Pharisaical movement was some of the Pharisees enforcing strict boundaries and exclusion could be taken too far. And it was not God's desire for the world. So I think Mark decided to include this story in his gospel about Jesus' strategic, unlawful, public meal of inclusion, redistribution, sharing, and welcome. I think he included the story because he wanted to show people that Jesus was about something different. His decision to throw that party with all those people got Jesus into some trouble. After that, Jesus decided he would publicly violate the Sabbath law two times in a row. This was a law, and Jesus chose to violate it publicly two times in a row, And at the end of the section, we read that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Already in chapter 3 of Mark, this group of political and religious leaders are plotting about how they would kill Jesus. Already in Mark, Jesus' kingdom project was incompatible with this social order that was being enforced by the local authorities, and that's why he had so much conflict with them. You see, their way of structuring society with the tax collectors overtaxing the peasantry kept a certain kind of peace, and undoing that system would be a major threat to the powerful. You know, as we're celebrating Black History Month, this reminds me of another strategic meal that we now call the sit-in movement. Led by young black freedom fighters a few decades ago, black and white people both illegally went and sat together at lunch counters across the South in protest of evil segregation laws. This sit-in movement caused great trouble all across the South, but it was good trouble. John Lewis in particular, if you read a biography about him, you'll see he he caused so much trouble in being involved in these movements across the South. Martin Luther King Jr. was all about 
uh, the kingdom of God. He carried on this part of Jesus' witness in his spirit. And he spoke of what he called the beloved community. And for me, this is when I think of the kingdom of God, I often think of Martin Luther King's vision of the beloved community. Here in Mark's gospel, we see a glimpse of what the beloved community is all about. We see Jesus taking up the cause of the poor and the oppressed and calling them to join a movement of redemption and change. And we also see Mar or Jesus calling the oppressors to also become part of the beloved community through repentance, through reparation, through solidarity, through reconciliation. You know, a few years ago, I, I've shared this song before. Uh, my friend Justin Berenger also loves this song. Um, some of y'all know him, but it's a song by a band called The Salters. I'm pretty sure Rick Reams looked it up a few years ago, and he's like, I don't know about this uh, uh, music. But uh, they, they drove, this group called The Salters, they drove around on this big black bus that ran on vegetable oil, and they played shows all across the country, and, and I got to see them live a couple of times. But they look kind of like what I picture John the Baptist look like. Um, and I want to read the lyrics to one of their songs because I think it really strikes to the heart of what Jesus did at this party, this feast at the house of Levi. He says, come now and join the feast from the greatest to the very least. Come now and join the feast right here in the belly of the beast. Cops and soldiers, you can come do too. Lay down your guns and come on through. Rich people, get rid of your stuff. Poor people, there will be enough. Mighty ones, come down from your thrones. Little ones, you will not be alone. Lazy man, come to the table. Make some food for those who ain't able. Pretty winner, swallow your pride. Drink the ugly loser who for all died. Make sure everyone gets some, and then we'll see the kingdom. And then it repeats. <laughs> when Jesus returns... After being gone for a while now, we're praying for Jesus to return, but after Jesus returns to establish his eternal rule and reign, the oppressive and hurtful and exclusionary practices of this world will come to an end. And I can't wait for that. How about you all? I'm excited about that. And for those who are willing to submit to Jesus as king, I, I believe that we will all live together in harmony, in equality, in love. And there will be no more hurting one another. There will be no more where some people have too much and some have not enough. Mark's gospel, though, makes it clear that we don't just sit around and wait for that day to come. With, we work with Jesus now to bring about his vision of a world that is ruled by the ethic of love of God and love of neighbor. We work towards that now with God. The ministry of Jesus didn't stop when he ascended up into heaven. I believe that when Jesus ascended up to heaven, it was now our job to carry on through the spirit of Jesus, his work here in this world. And so if you read about all the things Jesus did in the Gospels, our job is to continue that work today and, and imagine how we can do that work in our own context right now, even though we're 2,000 years removed from when Jesus walked the earth. I believe often this is going to result... Uh, and us getting into some good trouble sometimes, um, because Jesus got into good trouble. We must break rank sometimes with patriarchy. We must break rank with white supremacy and militarism and materialism. And when we're willing to break rank with those things, we're not always going to be well received. And some aren't going to like it. And some might even label us enemies. Some Christians, I believe, are just waiting around until they get to heaven. And for some folks, they believe the kingdom of God will come in its fullness and, and it'll come and be in this kind of 
far-off place that we'll get to experience after the earth is destroyed and we go and live with God in heaven. And so if you think the earth's just going to be destroyed one day, then making any life better down here right now doesn't make too much sense, right? For them, I think they believe that the big kingdom feast that we talk about will take place only in the afterlife. However, Jesus talks a lot about how the kingdom is already among us. It is here. It is right now. And I believe we can experience the joy of the kingdom right now when we engage in Jesus' boundary-breaking ministry here on earth. We are all invited to join the feast and live as citizens of the kingdom of God now, right now, as we walk here among one another here on this earth. And as we're going to see in the upcoming weeks, in order to join the feast, we're going to have to be willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus' path of service and love for others, even if that means getting into some good trouble sometimes, the necessary trouble um, that Jesus was willing to get into. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.